good. Let's give him a hand. Right? Praise the Lord. All right. I want to invite our children to come up here now for our children's message. So if, you're, if this is your first time here, we have a little message down here for the kids. You can send them down. They all just come sit right down here in the middle, and then I'll send them back to their parents in just a couple minutes. Hey, guys. Good to see you guys. All right. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Okay. All right. Taking notes. Good. All right. Hey, guys. Come over here. Have a seat. Perfect. All right. All right. So... We're doing something pretty special today, and I wanted to talk with you guys about it. Do you guys recognize, did you see these sitting out in the foyer today? Do you know why we put those out in the foyer today? You want to try? Go ahead. Yeah? Yeah? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's the children's sermon today. So, I mean, we could just go sit. You, you nailed it. Very good job. Yeah. So just what he said. So in a, at the end of the service, you're going to see your folks. They're going to open this thing up, right? So they're going to open up this top part. And this is a piece of bread, okay? And we are going to eat this. And what we do is we remember while we eat this that Jesus' body was nailed to a cross in our place that he sacrificed himself over to death and God's judgment so that we could be forgiven of our sin that his body was put in the grave that he was there for three days and on the third day what did he do he rose again now so when we eat this we remember that Jesus gave his body on our behalf and then we're going to open this up and I'll try not to splatter it all over myself because these can be kind of tough sometimes to open there we go so when we open this, inside of here, if you've never had this before, this is just grape juice. And we drink this juice to remind us that Jesus shed his blood as an atonement or a covering for our sins. So when we drink the juice and eat the bread a little bit later, we're doing that to remember two very important things. The first thing, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross in his death and resurrection, the second thing we remember is that Jesus is coming again. Did you know that? Yeah. He's coming back to take us home to be with him in heaven. He's going to come back right now. He's with God in heaven. One day he's going to return. And he's going to take all people who turn from their sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior home to be with him in heaven. So when we eat the bread and drink the juice, we do it by faith, believing, trusting Jesus that he's going to come again and take us home. So if you're a born-again believer, you may take the juice and the bread. If you're not yet, you can talk to your mom and dad or whoever brought you about what it means to have faith in Jesus, or you can come and talk to me, okay? So the word of the day for today is trust. Can you say trust? Trust. trust. That's the word of the day. So I'm so glad you guys came up here. I'll answer questions after church, okay? Can you remember to ask me later? All right. So the word of the day is trust. So you guys can go back and sit down, and I'll see you after church. Looking good. All right. I'm going to actually use it later right here. Thank you. All right, church, take out a copy of God's Word and open it with me to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. We have been walking through the book of Acts together uh, for a few months. I'm excited. 
uh, to be concluding that in the next few weeks. Acts chapter 23. One of the things that we mentioned in our singing, uh, was this, uh, the second to last song in the worship set, is our God is mighty to save. Do you believe that our God is strong enough to save? So I don't know what brought you in here today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I do know that all of us come with a unique set of circumstances, a unique set of challenges, a unique set of difficulties, a unique set of of joyful events, right? But I don't know what brought you in today, but I've got a message for you today from the Word of God that our God is mighty to save. Now the question is, do you believe that your God is mighty to save? Do you believe that our God, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, walk with you in your most difficult circumstances? Do you believe that we have a God who follows through on His Word when He said that I'm with you in the darkest valleys, that I'm with you at the highest mountaintops, that I'm not a God who will ever leave you or forsake you? Do you believe, church, do you believe that our God is mighty to save? All right. Will I walk by faith, believing That God is at work in every circumstance. That's the question I want you to think about today. Do I believe, by faith, that my God is walking with me and working in every circumstance? This is a question that the Apostle Paul had to answer during one of his darkest hours. Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Paul is in front of a Sanhedrin. This is a group of 70 Jewish leaders, plus one, the high priest. Paul had gone back to Jerusalem at the calling of the Holy Spirit to go back and to meet with the church there and also to tell them and give them a report about God's miraculous work among the Gentiles. Now, as Paul journeyed from his previous mission to Jerusalem, he received word from the Holy Spirit that he was, in fact, called to go to Jerusalem. And at the same time, when he entered into Jerusalem, he would be arrested and persecuted. He would be put into chains for the glory of God and for the gospel. And yet, Paul proceeded to go there. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Paul, at the behest of the the, uh, leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem at that time, he agreed to fulfill an obligation um, in order to show the Jews in that area that he was both a follower of Jesus and a fulfiller of the Jewish law. So he wanted to show them that he was not teaching against their law, but was in fact teaching people to follow Jesus as a fulfillment of the Jewish law. While Paul is in the temple fulfilling that vow that he agreed to take as a demonstration of his faithfulness to God, a riot has started. Some Jews had come in from out of town, and they've got the people all worked up in the temple, encouraging them to believe that Paul is breaking God's law, that he's bringing Gentiles into the temple. So this riot starts, and all the people start to gather around Paul. The the Bible says they start to grab him and pull at him and tear him apart. Lysias, the commander of the Roman, uh, the Roman army in Jerusalem, sees this happening. He comes in and he snatches Paul up to save his life and find out what's causing this disturbance. 
Now, in the confines of that uh, personal uh, conversation with Paul, uh, he realizes that Paul's a Roman citizen. So he cannot beat Paul. He's got to treat Paul appropriately according to Roman law and preserve his life until he can stand trial. So Lysias, the Roman commander, decides that since Paul is a Jew, a Roman Jew, that it would be best for Paul to stand in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin and try and figure out what's going on, right? Because Lysias doesn't want any trouble. He doesn't want the, the men higher up in the organization, in the Roman army, to hear about this problem and then to remove him from his post or even to penalize him. So now he takes Paul and he sets him in front of the Sanhedrin, the 70 Jewish leaders, to try and straighten out what the big problem is. So Paul now is standing in front of them, and we find ourselves in Acts 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias, the most important um, official in the Jewish religious system at this time, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him in the mouth. So Paul does a couple of pretty bold things at the beginning of this trial. First, he speaks first before anybody in the Sanhedrin asks him a question. That's pretty bold. The second thing is even bolder. He stands in front of them and says, I stand in front of you in good conscience, knowing that I've done nothing wrong, nothing against God. This is a big deal. They know that Paul is a follower of Jesus. They know that Paul preaches uh, forgiveness of sins through repentance and belief in Jesus as Savior. And so when Paul stands in front of them and says, I've done nothing wrong, I stand in front of you in good conscience, he's telling them, my sins have been forgiven by Jesus the Messiah. Now that's not bad enough. Inversely, what Paul is saying to them, the ones who've rejected Jesus, some of whom were the ones who persecuted and, and voted to crucify Jesus. He's condemning them for their sins, for their lack of faith, for their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And so the high priest, he catches this pretty quickly. He orders them to strike Paul in the mouth. Now what's interesting about this, according to Leviticus 19 verse 15, Every Jew is entitled to an appropriate trial for their, their sin or their crime. And they're protected under God's law from any kind of, of, of violence, any kind of persecution. There are a certain number of witnesses that have to be present. Everything is according to the Old Testament law. And so the high priest orders Paul to be struck, and that's in violation of the Jewish law. So Paul responds appropriately in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, you're ordering me to be struck. So it's kind of like Paul is digging a grave here, right? Listen to what one scholar says. He says the image of the whitewashed wall was particularly appropriate expressing the sheer hypocrisy of this one who stood there in his fine priestly vestments, symbolic of his role as the intercessor between the people and God, 
His character and his actions belied the outward appearance. You know, Jesus used the same illustration to depict their hypocrisy, referring to the practice of whitewashing tombs as a warning to people that the defilement of dead bones lay within. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. So when Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, he's telling him, you look pure and good on the outside, but on the inside, you're sinning against God by having me struck illegally. So they continue in verse 4. Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the foundation of Paul's defense in front of his brother and sister Jews is that he abides in the Jewish law as a follower of Jesus. So Paul either didn't know that Ananias was the high priest or he didn't recognize him, or uh, he's being sarcastic telling them, well, I didn't know he was the high priest. The high priest, of course, would act appropriately according to the law, and he ordered me to be struck. In, in any regard, Paul backs off. What he said was correct. They had no right to slap him, but he does back off in reverence to God's ordained office of high priest and God's command for Jews to respect their leaders according to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. What happens next is amazing. Paul's brilliant. Paul's going to take this theological grenade and he's going to drop it on the table. Have y'all ever been to maybe a family event or friends and you, you know what their theological grenades, right? That you, you ask a certain question and you know there's like four people at the table and everybody's got a different opinion. Anybody? How about politically? You ever do that at a family event? What do y'all think about this? And then you know as soon as it comes out, it's like, right? This is what Paul's doing. Look at verse 6. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. So before he was saved, before he followed Jesus, Paul was a Pharisee. It's a sect of Judaism who believed in the resurrection of the dead. More specifically, they believed at the end of time that God would raise up his people from the dead to be with him in paradise, in eternal life. So Paul's not lying and saying what he's saying. He, of course, believed that Jesus would one day return. That he would resurrect all who are born-again believers in him to be with him in eternal life. So everything that Paul said was true. It also happened to be useful for him to point out as he sought to end this illegal trial. And chaos ensues. Look at verse 9. The shouting grew loud. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? 
When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and to take him away with them and to bring him into the barracks. The Pharisees, of all people, are used by God to rescue Paul from this mob. Perhaps they're referring, when they say perhaps an angel or spirit spoke to him, they're thinking about his Damascus Road experience where he claimed to have heard from Jesus, which we believe is true. Eventually, the debate turns violent, and the mob starts tearing at Paul. Lysias, the commander, sees this happening. Paul's a Roman citizen, so he can't let him be killed. So he sends his guard down, and they take him back up into the barracks for his protection. You know, Jesus said that believers would endure this kind of persecution. Do you know that? Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 20 say this. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as as doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. Paul experienced all the things that Jesus said would happen to him. The disciples experienced these things. Christians all around the world experienced what Jesus said would happen to his followers. You too will experience these things to one degree or another. What do we do when God puts us in a circumstance that's dangerous, confusing, difficult, hard? Well, we got three principles from Jesus. Number one, be ready to take a stand for Jesus. Whether you're placed before a king, a mayor, a governor, a senator, or the President of the United States, or you're called to take a stand at your kitchen table with a son or a daughter, a grandchild, or a neighbor. Be ready to stand for Christ. And in those moments, Jesus says to be shrewd as serpents, to exercise good judgment. Be wise in your words and your actions. And then he says, be innocent as doves. Be pure and unstained by the world. Don't be afraid. When God places you in those unique, ordained circumstances, do not worry about what you will do or what you will say. As you're grown and discipled, reading his word and praying to God, he will bring those things to your lips. And he will give you the words to say for his glory. This happens regularly to our mission team, our our evangelism team that goes out on Thursdays, on Monday uh, evenings to our cots. Folks, they're regularly put in places around tables, asked very difficult questions, confronted with conflict and difficulty. And those folks that go out there will tell you that Jesus will meet you in that place. 
And Jesus will help you to say what you need to say for his glory. At the end of the day, we have to answer this one question. Do I trust Jesus? I'm sure that Paul asked that question many times that night in that barracks as he waited to see what Lysias would do. If, if Lysias were simply to let him out and kick him out of that barracks, he would probably immediately have been murdered. Do I trust Jesus to walk with me in the darkest valleys? To have those difficult conversations with my friends and my family and my coworkers? Do I trust Jesus to meet me in that circumstance? To conquer that mountain in my life? Verse 11 continues. That following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Sometimes we forget that Paul is a person just like you and me. You know, in his letters in the New Testament, Paul reports being afraid, tongue-tied, worried. He reports having trouble and difficulties, having trouble with rejection, being worried about what happened the next day. But Paul took all those things to the Lord. He endured some pretty harsh circumstances. His life has hung in the balance in countless occasions. Paul now sits in this barracks and Jesus meets him where he is, perhaps in one of the lowest points of his life. And he tells him, you don't worry about it. You're not going to die here. I want to send you to Rome. And, and to Rome is where Paul would ultimately go where he would be martyred for his faith. You see, Jesus had a mission for Paul to complete. Every experience you have is an opportunity to make Jesus famous and to give God glory. Now this happens on big platforms for some people and, and smaller platforms for others. When I was thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, the, the great... Florida Gator football player Tim Tebow. You guys remember him, right? A very outspoken believer in Jesus. I remember the countless times seeing him on TV on various platforms, willing to stand for Christ. I remember seeing him uh, being interviewed by, by news media that were, were um, confronting him about his faith in Jesus, lecturing him about being so outspoken for his faith. And I remember seeing God meet him in that circumstance, helping him to retain his testimony, to demonstrate his love for God, and to stand boldly for Christ. At a, at a, at a much less known level, I've seen countless women come into this church. I know men too, but most of the time, in my experience, it's been women coming to church they have a husband at home who's not a believer, not interested in following Jesus, not supporting her coming to church. And yet she's here. She's bringing her kids. She's serving. She's walking with God through that very difficult circumstance. I know she's going home after church on Sundays, being confronted by an ungodly husband who doesn't want her here, who makes life difficult for her. 
And yet she's trusting Jesus in the midst of that circumstance. My question for you is, do you trust Jesus to meet you in the midst of your circumstance? Whatever it is that you brought in with you today, are you willing to lay that down at the altar and believe that God will meet you where you are? That God is moving. That God is able to conquer that mountain. That God is able to save you in the midst of that sin. That God loves you. That God's got a plan for you. Because God is working in the midst of your circumstance the same way that he was working in the midst of Paul's circumstance. Let's continue in verse 12. When it was morning... The Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we've killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander, and he will bring him down to you as you are going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near... We're ready to kill him. So there's this group of Jewish leaders that want to take the law into their own hands. They feel deeply in their hearts that it's God's will for Paul to be murdered. That's completely and totally contrary to Old Testament law. But they believe that their idea of justice supersedes God's law. And so they hatch a plan to murder Paul. It's appropriate to stop just for a minute and to think about how that applies to our life. I'm sure that these leaders believed that their plan was ethical and honored God because they believed that Paul was a blasphemer. So contrary to the word of God, they hatched a plan and we're going to work that out in their own authority and under their own power. If we're not careful, church, we can do the same thing. Oftentimes, it it seems right to do things the way we want to do them. But I want to tell you today that there are no special deals, no arrangements to be made with God based on your unique circumstances. The Bible is God's inerrant, perfect word given to us to live out a faith that honors God and gives Him glory. It is our standard of truth, not our own hearts. If we're living in a way that's contrary to the Bible, no matter what circumstances led us to that way, then we're sinning against God and we need to repent and make a change by faith in Jesus. Now God's blessing, God's promise to us is that when we turn from that sin and trust in Jesus by faith, we'll be forgiven. Think about it like this. When we were on vacation, which we were so thankful to be able to have uh, the last couple weeks, while we were up, I I bought some soda. It's called Pepsi Max, which is like a Diet Pepsi, right? But they had Pepsi Max with mango. It's very tasty. Very tasty indeed. And we got that 12-pack of Pepsi Max with mango, and we were drinking it up, man. It was, oh, it was so good. It tasted so good. And you know... Because I love the taste of it so much, maybe I should dump some Pepsi Max in the gas tank of the van. Right? Because it tastes so good going down. 
Maybe we'll put the Pepsi Max in the van, and that could be the fuel for the van. But if I open up the, uh, the, the owner's manual of the van, it's pretty clear about what goes in that gas tank, right? Gasoline, not Pepsi Max. It would be very unhealthy for that van to dump that, that soda in there. When we try and make decisions and live a life contrary to the word of God, it's like dumping Pepsi Max in the gas tank of the van. God designs you. God knows you perfectly. God loves you. And so he gave us this life manual to live by. And what he tells us in here is, listen, if you live by the principles I've given you in this book, it'll be the best possible life you can have. The maximum amount of joy that you can have. The best possible eternity that you could experience. By living in obedience to his word. Those Jews, they, they had walked away from God's law in an attempt to kill Paul. They, they took the word and they laid it aside for what they thought was right. And it looks like Paul's life will certainly end now, right? Like, this is it. This has got to be it. Look at verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about the ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander... Because he has something to report to him. So he took him and he brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and led him aside and inquired privately, What is it that you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they were going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry of him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, Don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Also, he provided, uh, also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge that they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against you in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they, were, they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing. Whenever your accusers also get here, he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Wow, that was a long description. A long description that if we're not careful, we won't recognize God's hand at work in every single detail to protect Paul's life so he can fulfill the mission. One scholar writes, Sometimes God delivers his children by the simple word of a young relative. 
Sometimes he has to call in the Calvary. At all times, he's ultimately in charge. This passage is more like a movie script than a Bible passage. It reminds me that God can and will use anyone in any circumstance to fulfill his plan. In this instance, God used a powerful, cruel, ungodly nation called Rome to keep safe his VIP missionary. Now listen, you probably won't be visited by Jesus like Paul was. But don't make the mistake of believing that God's not at work in your circumstance. Don't make the mistake of believing that, that Jesus and his angel army are not present on this earth and at work in every moment of your life. It reminds me of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, right? Elisha and his servant, they're sort of hunkered down, and Ben-Hadad's army has gathered around them, and, and the servant wakes up Elisha, and he says, hey, hey, we got some trouble here. You see this army? And Elisha says, we got a bigger army than they do. Elisha prays to God to open up his servant's eyes. His eyes are opened, and he sees surrounding them chariots of fire and God's angels prepared to go to work and battle against Ben-Hadad's army. You, as a born-again believer, have been adopted into the family of God. God loves you, and your life is precious in his eyes. God has a mission for you. God has a plan for you. God desires to use you in amazing ways. The circumstance that you are walking through is something that God can use for his glory. He's not forgotten you. He loves you, and he's got a plan for your life. Will we trust him? Will we take our God at his word? Like Paul did. We're going to move in a time now of celebrating the Lord's Supper. As I explained to the children, the, the Lord's Supper is something that Jesus instituted with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. It was something that he gave us to remember him and his sacrifice that he made on the cross. To remember that he will fulfill his promises. It's something we take to remind us of our Lord. To drive us to deeper faith in him. And so the word of God stresses that this is something for believers only. So if you're a born again believer, we, we invite you to celebrate this with us. If you're not yet, I would just ask you to abstain, but I would love to talk to you about how you could be a believer in Christ. It also tells us that we're not to take this lightly, that we're to prepare our hearts. And so I'm just going to give you a couple minutes. We'll just have some music playing in the background. Just to go to the Lord in prayer, just there at your seat. Prepare your heart to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross for us. To remember his return. If you have not yet uh, received the elements, they're in the foyer. So during this time, you can get up and go back and, and get those as well. So let's just take a minute or two now and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper.
Let's now take the bread. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. And now the juice. When the supper had ended, he took the cup. said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. Thank you that we can walk by faith, trusting in you, because you are a God of your word, a God who meets us in every circumstance, who loves us and has a plan for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to move now as we prepare to close the service into a time of invitation. I want to invite everybody to stand. This is a time for you to respond to whatever God has laid on your heart. God has called us to trust him, to walk closely with him through every circumstance, remembering that he is a God of his word who fulfills his promises. If God is calling you to come forward for prayer at the altar, we're up here. We'll be praying with you. If you need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Savior, we can help you do that as well. Whatever God's laid on your heart, I want to encourage you to come forward as we have this time of invitation.